you are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to the 10th episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. That's right, since launching in July, we've been approximating two episodes a month and have reached the big one zero double digits of pithy conversations with post-growth thinkers and game changers. The last two episodes were a little esoteric in that they focus on the role of spirituality and philosophy in activism. So I thought I'd return to Earth on this episode to interview Leif van Onselen, the self-titled Unconventional Economist from the Macro Business blog. Leith has been writing for the last decade on the fallacies and shortcomings of Australia's deregulated growth at all cost economic model that has been on hyperdrive for at least the last couple of decades. In particular, he examines the impacts that this has on quality of life, housing affordability, infrastructure, and the real per capita impacts of growth, which has demonstrated a downward trend in the quality of life for most Australians. Leith was the lead author of a discussion paper, Population Growth and Infrastructure in Australia, The Catch-Up Illusion. This was commissioned by Sustainable Population Australia and launched by Bob Carr in Sydney in 2019. Leith is unique in his candidness in criticising population growth as a means of propping up a listing economy and has earned both praise and authority for speaking up on the rates of economic migration in particular that Australia has had in the two decades leading up to 2020 when COVID put all this on ice. I interviewed Leith back in late August during a time in which a coalition government was acting out of character and actually providing social services during the pandemic. I know. This provided a whiff of cautious optimism to the interview, which perhaps may have been dampened since the federal budget was announced on the 6th of October. As many of us have grown up with the Liberals since the mid-90s, there really weren't many surprises here. Tax cuts for the rich and powerful and tax rises for the bootless and unhorsed. An end to job seeker and unemployment support. A total disregard for the environment that is bordering on cliché now. About the most interesting item during budget was Scott Morrison's newfound fetish for gas. If only for the fact that it is logistically trickier to bring gas into Parliament compared to a lump of coal. Unless Scott Morrison's spin every time he opens his mouth counts as gas. Many in the political and media sphere are lamenting the fact that Australia has failed to maintain its breakneck population growth rate of a new camber each year. The Sydney Morning Herald stated that Victoria will now have 400,000 fewer people in 2022 than what was forecast pre-COVID. The state is forecast to be 3.7 billion worse off in GST payments which the paper claims are critical sources of state revenue and used to fund education, health and other essential services. An article from The Age was a little bit more measured. It said, it is not necessarily a bad thing and will at least force the state government not to be so dependent on rising population to prop up revenue. This, I believe, is the crux of many of Leith's arguments 
that an economy needs to be smarter and more diverse than relying on whatever trickles down from increasing the sheer size of what amounts to an unimaginative self-referential loop, which is what our economy currently is. Now, these are my words, not his. But enough from me. Let's hear straight from the unconventional economist himself. Now, I do need to forewarn that due to technological glitches on the day that we were unable to record on my usual program, so we recorded on Zoom. Unfortunately, Zoom had its own minor technical glitches, so unfortunately, Leaf's wisdom filters through somewhat of a digitalized haze. And they still tell us that technology is going to save us. I'm going to start us off with a song from my band Shock Octopus called In a Box. This song is an ode to the horrors of high-rise living and the compartmentalization of the working world that I believe resonates both with Leith's criticisms of the property development industry and Daniel Andrews' fascination with concrete, perhaps also Scott Morrison's fascination with gas. So lush and it goes on being 
of my mind And reach the edge And I know that it too I'm confined I am sitting here with the unconventional economist, Leif Van Onselen. Now, Leif, what's a nice economist like you doing on a post-growth podcast like this? And what indeed makes you uh, said unconventional economist? Yeah, look, it's a pretty um, weird story how I got to this having this avatar of the unconventional economist. Basically, in a former life, I used to work at the Australian Treasury as an economist for three years. And to be quite honest, I was actually pretty much a mainstream economist back then. You know, in my 20s at the time, I never really questioned the whole growth dogma. I was indoctrinated on Ken Henry's uh, three Ps policy, which is uh, population, participation, and productivity. And in fact, I even wrote a paper, I think, at the Australian Treasury um, and why Australia needs more immigration at the time. But bearing in mind that was when the uh, immigration intake into Australia was actually much, much lower and it was a lot more sustainable than it is now. And then I shifted on to, uh, to work at uh, the evil Goldman Sachs, uh, an investment bank for five years. And uh, at the time, I managed to be able to do the job in a couple of hours a day. I had all this spare time and I used to comment on newspaper articles and you know, all the Fairfax stuff and the Australian and whatever. I used to just spend all my day commenting because I had all this spare time. And then one day, um, I had a, you know, one of my wife's uh, husbands over. Sorry, my, my, sorry, my wife's friend's husband over. That's a bit of a... <laughs> that's good to there. clarify. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Her husband, I didn't actually know that well at the time, was um, was way ahead of the curve on all this sort of, you know, electronic sort of stuff. And he said to me, I was talking to him about all this, um, all sorts of things, housing related issues, et cetera. And he said, mate, you gotta, you've got to write a blog. I'm like, what's a blog? And he said, oh, well, you know, you just write down your thoughts and people read it. And uh, he set me up with a blog on that day, set up the blog and we had to come up with a name. So I, I just reeled off the top of my head about 10 different names. And then eventually they're all taken. And I got to, I don't know, unconventional economists, presto, it wasn't taken. It got sort of reasonably popular, I guess. At the time I thought it was popular when, you know, a couple hundred people read an article. I thought, wow, you know, it's amazing. A couple hundred people are reading it. So I basically work at Goldman Sachs, do my job in a couple of hours and then spend the rest of my day thinking about what I'm going to write or if not writing it at work, emailing it to myself and then upload it. So, um, yeah, sorry, Goldie, so I was using your time. Oh, it was uh, just an efficient to, use of time, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that's right. Well, I sort of had to look busy while I was at work. So, I thought, oh, you know, yeah, through, through that process, uh, I then met a couple other guys who also had blogs. And that was obviously Dave Llewellyn Smith, who I worked with at Macro Business. And, uh, and of course, Cam Murray, who I'm still mates with, uh, wrote The Game of Mates. And one day, Dave just, I think after a few beers or something like that, he goes, why don't we just form our blogs into a mega blog? I'm like, yeah, right. So we all chipped in about 500 bucks each. Then we created Macro Business for another year, basically worked full-time at Goldman's and then part-time on Macro Business. And it sort of got to the stage where I decided to quit Goldman's and try and launch into the whole blog thing full-time. And uh, the plan was to give it a go for 12 months to see if it was, you know, could actually make a living out of it. 
and we just survived that 12 months almost we almost gave it up a few times because it was just hard work and no, no reward but then after about three years it sort of got financially viable and then nine years later it's uh yeah it's still going and i guess it's pretty much a staple now of the media landscape at least on the uh, the fringe media you know we've been around longer than the guardian has here and when we started, there was business business um, spectator that that now obviously went by the wayside, and so we've kind of outlasted a lot of them. And uh, yeah, still going strong. And obviously, over the course of the journey, you know, when you do something long enough, you become a lot more efficient. Now, I've observed that you're a very rapid writer. Twelve to fourteen, easy. A day. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in fact, last week um, Dave was actually sick, so he took the whole week off, and I think I was cheating out uh, eighteen to twenty a day. What's your secret for speedy keyboard fingers and uh, immediate editing? I mean, whenever I do like a submission or an article, it takes me uh, weeks. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. It, it depends because um, obviously, if you're doing a if you're doing a submission or a research report, you write differently, and you got to have citations. And if I was to do a do a research report for someone, it would take me a hell of a lot longer than I can write on macro business. Right? I've got my own style. Often they're topics that have come up, you know, a million times before. So it's not like I'm covering new ground. Uh, and also I've just been doing it for so long. So mm-hmm. when you do something for nine years, I tried to sort of do it back then. Like, how many articles have I written? I don't know. It'd be at least 30,000, I'd say, if not more. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah. think so, yeah. I sort of did a, you know, try and work out how many do a year, then times it by the number of years. And, well, um, they do say it takes about nine years of repetition to become an expert in something. So I, I guess... Yeah, uh, obviously, I've been doing it so long. When, when, when we started this, I remember I was doing like four articles a day and I was absolutely exhausted because you, you're doing everything from scratch. But nine years later, I've, I've got all those spreadsheets. I've already set them up. I've been doing it for so long that there aren't that many new data sets to find, or at least not that I've found yet. So you can obviously become a lot more efficient. And also just having confidence. So when, when I started, I used to be a lot more thin-skinned and worried what people thought. And you, you, you second-guess yourself. So I used to re, re-read articles five times over and then change the wording a little bit and worry about, oh, you know, does this sound better than that, et cetera. Now I give it one proofread and bang, it's up. I'm not worried about, you know, have I got this 100% right? Because you never do. You're going to have always X number of people who are going to hate me. Uh, X number are going to like me. I don't care. I sort of, I've got a very thick skin now, so I don't really care anymore about that sort of stuff. You're not like shaking over the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sitting there with a thesaurus going, oh, and how do I word this better? And, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. You can just kind of write it and send it and that's it. Well, that's really handy. So the mission of Macro Business is to bridge the gulf between the Australian business media and reality. So in 30 seconds or less, uh, what are some of the unrealities that you are indeed bridging? <laughs> um, yeah, this, this sort of endless, uh, the endless growth, rent-seeking Ponzi economy that Australia is running. Um, it's really a bit of a fake economy. So we're kind of battling that, I guess. We're also constantly battling, uh, I guess, intergenerational type issues. Re- really just poor policy. And, that, and that, that's been going for nine years. And to be honest with you, like, sometimes you feel like you're making headroom and a week later it feels like you've got nowhere because it seems like the more things, things change, the more they stay the same. Yes, uh, um, neoliberal model isn't one that wants to change if it can help us. And it's, uh, very, it's, a, it's a slippery little beast. It can uh, appropriate anything that comes into its path, I find. So 
Um, why, why did you decide to buck the trend, uh, Leaf? Why can't we grow infinitely in a finite planet? And what about all that innovation, technology and uh, resource substitution? That's one of my favourites that we're told by some other economists, politicians and uh, their big business sponsors. I guess the, the, way, the way, you know, gross GDP is measured, it is actually possible to grow forever. But that's only because um, you can't do it in, in, in a resource sense. So, you know, you could have more, I don't know, digital transactions between people, et cetera, which counts as growth. But you can't grow forever ever in a resource sense in terms of what you extract from the planet because we've only got one planet. If you look at the Australian growth model, the Australian, Australian growth model is all about quantity. Right? So whether that's, and I often use the population one as a classic, the whole growth model is basically about getting bigger and bigger every year, bringing more people in so you can build houses for them, so you can sell coffee to them, and so you can grow your domestic market. It, but it doesn't, it doesn't care about what the impact is on the environment, um, what the impact is on, on quality of life, what the impact is on you know, the individual. And it's really, it's really a, a, a growth model that's designed around enriching the few. So enriching big business, uh, specific industries. So whether it's the education industry, whether it's the banking sector, the big retail, uh, big property, et cetera. Uh, but that always, inevitably comes at the expense of the everyday person who ends up, you know, obviously living in smaller, more expensive housing, has to compete hard at lower wages, um, has to put up with more traffic congestion, basically has an eroded quality of life generally. The whole Australian uh, model of, you know, getting to uh, 40 million people by mid-century and then there's, you know, 60 to 70 million people by the end of the century. And then, you know, where does it end? One, one of the key things I often say to people when they say, oh, no, you know, it's not, nothing wrong. Australia can keep growing is, apart from all these livability things I've just mentioned, Australia's competitive advantage in the world is that we're a resource-rich nation, right? So, obviously, I honestly believe we'd be a richer country if we had 20 million people now than if we had, at, at our current level, of almost 26 million because we've got this huge resource base. It means you, you've got less wealth per capita. Now, now, is it right for 20 million people to sharing what this nation's got or 25 million or whatever but but those are the facts and basically you know the policy we've seen over the past 15 years of extreme high levels of population growth immigration is not sustainable and i noticed that many of your articles uh challenge the population growth dogma uh, particularly that of the federal economic migration policy um I, i'm curious to know like for example now that migration has suddenly gone down, you know, that Josh Frydenberg and that are pushing people to have larger families. So is there something that's particular about migration for you or in an alternative universe or say in a couple of years, we still got a recession and people are um, encouraged to have large families, whether you'd be encouraging people to have smaller families or things like that. There's two parts of it. I've got no problem with immigration per se. I'd Honestly, don't. But it's the, um, I guess it's just the amount. And I guess this gets back to at the start of this interview. I sort of said that when I was at Treasury, I was all for it. And that's because at that time, uh, we're talking about sort of 2003, 2004, Australia's immigration program was below 100,000 at the time. It was around, you know, hover between 90 to 100,000, which to me at the time was fine. And at the time around the turn of the century, I, I live in Melbourne. So back then, Melbourne's population was about 3.4 million. And now it's, 5.1 million so since the turn of the century you know the, the the city that i'm in has grown by 50 percent 
And it's almost, it's been pretty much almost exclusively because of high immigration. So it, it's not really an issue of, oh, should we have no immigration or should we have, you know, is immigration good or bad? It's just, to me, it's, there's, there's been far too much of it and it's been concentrated in two cities, Sydney and Melbourne. I guess my, my, my view is, you know, I don't want to see the end of immigration. Often I get counted, you know, get labelled as an anti-immigration zealot and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, no, no, I'm not against immigration. I just want, uh, you know, more sustainable levels, basically what existed in Australia before 2003, before it got ramped up. You know, if it went back to those levels, you'd probably, or if it, was, or if it never left those levels, you never would have heard from me on this issue because I wouldn't have had an issue. The second part of your question about family size, honestly, don't really care. Families should be free to choose the families they want. So if you want to have a big family, that's fine. If you want to have a small family, that's that that's your choice as well. Australia's fertility rate's about 1.7, I think, the last time I checked. So it's below replacement anyway. What that means is if it's uh, it's going to be just above two um, to basically hold the population constant over the long run. We're below that level. And it doesn't mean that Australia's population is going to fall. It just means that after uh, you know several decades, the population would start to fall. I don't see why the government needs to try and get it bigger. I don't see why they need to try and get it. So I think they should just let people choose the right family size for them because it's in the end, it's it, it's their choice. And, you know, Dick, Dick Smith often makes the call. He says, you know, Australians are choosing to have family size of this. So why is the government forcing a much bigger population on us, which is not what Australian families are choosing through mass immigration. Peter Costello failed to uh, talk everyone into having larger families, which uh, let me know if I'm paraphrasing wrong here, and that's why the federal government then turned to migration. Yeah, I, I, so I suppose that's uh, <laughs> good news that um, people make their own choices of their family size, which is a downward trend, and government can't do much about it. That's right, and also there are, you know, there are obviously a lot of negative costs from having a big migration program, and often these are never raised. They don't ever talk about the, you know, positives that come out of it. But one of those, the biggest, is the higher cost of housing, and we've seen this in Sydney and Melbourne. So Sydney and Melbourne have received the lion's share of the migration in the last decade or so, and surprise, surprisingly, the markets where the two housing markets have gone absolutely gangbusters and are so far ahead of everywhere else in the country that it's completely unaffordable to live in these two places. And obviously, if you're paying, if, if so much more of your, li- if your lifetime budget is going into housing and or you've been forced to rent, you're not going to want to have as many kids because you can't afford it and because you start that sort of process so much later in life because it takes you so much longer to get a foothold in the housing market. By running the big migration program, in some ways, you're actually reducing the fertility rate of the incumbent population. Of course, some people would point out that some various migrant groups have, have more children than others, but at an aggregate level, by forcing up the cost of housing and making the, uh, I guess, you know, lowering, uh, lowering wages and increasing the cost of living, you're actually working against that goal of having more children because they can't afford it. So tell me, Leif, why can't we just put the migrants in the centre of the country where there's no one and tell them very firmly not to move? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a few, few things there. Uh, and, and, and this is where this whole, you know, migrants to the bush thing that we heard last year is just a farce. We should have seen this. We just had the, a, a massive drought in the country. There's not a lot of water in the in the interior of the country. So that, that there's a natural barrier to obviously having a much bigger population. Secondly, um, you know, migrants are voting with, it, with their feet. They tend to go where their diaspora are. So obviously... Because there's big migrant communities in the city of Melbourne, surprise, surprise, that's where the new arrivals want to go. So that's, that's why it's concentrated in the city of Melbourne. There's also 
constitutional issues. So it's very hard to keep people in specific areas long term. You can do it with certain temporary migration programs. You can tie in that they must live in, in, in regional areas for a fixed amount of time. But once they become a permanent resident, there's nothing to stop them moving where they want to become, uh, where, where they want to go, which, which tends to be Sydney and Melbourne. All the studies that have come out recently show that even when, uh, when uh, migrants um, get put in these regional areas, they end up going back to the two major cities anyway, because that's where their diaspora are. So the whole, oh, we just need to move them around to other parts of Australia is a bit of a myth because it hasn't happened for 100 years. And I can't, well, it hasn't happened in the last sort of 50 years. The uh, post-war migrants went everywhere. When people say, oh, but 80% of Australia has a population density of, you know, under one person per square kilometre. And, you know, so do many parts of Western China and so does Egypt <laughs> outside of the Nile Delta and so does Antarctica and there's a reason for that. It's because not viable for human habitation. That's right. There's either a lack of water in the case of um, you know the interior parts of pretty much the entire country, or in the case of going far north, it's very inhospitable. Yeah, I mean that that that's why the the sweet spot in Australia for for population is you know this sort of temperate Melbourne up to the subtropical Sunshine Coast Brisbane, because if you go much further than that, it's not that comfortable. So um, this whole notion that we can just oh, just put them here or put them there. It doesn't really work in practice because people will go where they want to go. Very inconvenient of them. <laughs> now, yes. you're a little bit different to most of the guests on the show so far. Um, you are perhaps the only one thus far who's appeared on the Bolt Report. <laughs> um, just from there, I'm interested to know what your vision for a society is that's no longer uh, reliant on growth and if not growth, what would you see instead? Um, a lot of people on on the program so far uh, have have looked at degrowth models or, or steady state societies or even rewilding and dismantling capitalism. Um, so, what would you want to see other than population growth uh, in changes to our material consumption or? stewardship with the environment or the way our communities operate it's an open-ended question but i am really curious yeah it's a, it's, it's also the the 50 million dollar question i think i think um uh, by memory dick smith i think offered a million bucks to anyone who could solve this this exact riddle um and i don't think he's paid out yet and that was about a decade ago so mm. i don't think anyone's been able to solve it but um look basically i just wish um economists policy makers etc would just get off this GDP bandwagon, which is the you know the the primary measurement in Australia is GDP because if because if you're not growing you're going backwards, and I'd rather see him um, similar to what I guess Jacinda Ardern in 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 New Zealand's tried to do, but obviously you know done in a very limited way, but just focus on well-being indicators, so quality of life. I'd I'd love to see a situation where people only have to work three days a week if they want to to get and they can just get enough and, and, and have the rest as leisure time. Uh, and, and, you know, sure, it means consuming less, but you don't need to consume to be happy. And I think um, just focus purely on well-being and when it comes to, um, to advancing society, productivity. So, you know, using um, technology in place of uh, resource-intensive uh, uses, um, you know, whether that's green energy, whatever. There's nothing wrong with, I guess, standing still doing less and smelling the roses. A lot of people think, think if, you know, 
by, by thinking this way, oh, you're just a bludger. But it's not been a bludger. It's about actually enjoying life, not trying to get more, you know, better car, better clothes, better this, better that, um, you know, buy, 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 consume, consume, consume. Because ultimately, none of that stuff makes you happy. It's all about your personal relationships. It's all about having leisure to do what you want, whether that's keeping fit, which is what I like to do. I think us as humans, and this is this isn't just an Australian problem. This is a this is a human being problem, and, a, and maybe it's just built into, a, ingrained into us. We're like the the mouse in the proverbial rat wheel that just keeps spinning faster and faster. It doesn't go anywhere. And if you look at most happiness surveys around the world, um, you know consumer societies aren't happy. Now, I remember a Happy Planet index back when they were doing those. I think they dismantled it a couple of years ago because uh, no one's really happy anymore in this world. But um, back when they were doing it, the Costa Rica was uh, happiest planet with a fraction of the GDP of, um, you know, countries like Australia and the US uh, because they had access to nature and uh, they, they, they've got a version of the wellbeing index so you know well, just goes to show <laughs> well, well 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 i think i think denmark is the uh or, sorry maybe it's norway it's one of the scandinavian countries or maybe it's all of them they often lead the the global happiness index every year and that's and, despite uh, the winters mm. yeah exactly I, I i look i would hate to live there uh personally because i'm a I don't, I don't like melbourne it's too cold for me i'd, I'd rather live up north uh, i'm a warm weather guy like i um I hate the cold with a passion, and I hate winter. I absolutely right. hate it. And we uh, send you to the Laplands then. <laughs> that, 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 that's right. If you ever want to go and punish me, just send me to Tasmania. Yet, despite their cold weather, and despite the fact that you know they have almost twenty-four hour darkness for part of the year, and then obviously summertime is nearly twenty-four hour uh, sunshine, which to me would just drive me crazy. Um, they're still incredibly happy, and it's because they've they seem to have just nailed this whole sense of community. And their relationships and that kind of thing, and that and, and that's what makes them happy. Unfortunately, us, you know, in the English-speaking West and other Western nations, unfortunately, haven't quite nailed that. The more we consume and the more um, growth-based we've become, we've actually become more disconnected from communities and from our families, etc. So it's actually working against us. Now, you're an advocate for modern monetary theory. Is that an accurate label to throw at you? Not really. No, no. My, my business partner Dave's uh, an advocate. I'm agnostic. So right, my whole yeah. thing is I I don't see a problem with it. Um, I I don't really I don't really care. See, my, my whole thing is um, especially given the situation we've got where we've got massive uh, under unemployment, underemployment. We've got a huge demand deficit in the economy. We're basically in a, in a depression, or the closest thing we're probably going to see to an economic depression in our lifetime. Um, I want to see the government basically step up and fill the fill the demand deficit in the economy. And I don't care if they do it through modern monetary theory or if they do it the traditional way, just by the cheapest borrowing rates in our history to basically borrow big, you know, fill in the, the demand deficit that way. I, it doesn't worry me which way they do it, but I want to see the the government basically uh, step up, um, do the opposite of austerity and to step up and fill the demand deficit in the economy. So there's a few things I want to see. I want to see them obviously raise the uh, job seeker allowance uh, permanently because um, job seeker, for those who don't know, that's basically the, the rebadged new start and it's the uh, it's the unemployment benefit, the dole. And Australia's um, unemployment benefit before coronavirus hit and it was raised temporarily. Uh, it was the lowest in the, in the, in the developed world um, at an absolutely appalling low rate which is 30% below the poverty line it's basically one step above homelessness 
And, um, you know, I'd love to see the government, uh, if they want to use NMT, that's cool. Um, but if not, just, you know, go, don't, don't worry about going into debt. Raise that to a, a satisfactory level. Spend big on, uh, on your traditional Keynesian stimulus like infrastructure, public housing, all those sorts of things that give you long-term benefits and also uh, fill the demand hole. One thing we've had with this 15 years of huge population growth is we've created these ginormous infrastructure bottlenecks across the country. And I'll look at this crisis as it's knocked immigration down almost zero at the moment, um, probably temporarily. But so taking the demand pressure off at the moment, here's a once opportunity to basically catch up on all the infrastructure we didn't build, we should have built in the previous 15 years, to basically declog our cities, um, you know, boost productivity and set us up for the long term. And, you know, given that household consumption, which is like 55% of the economy, is going to be in the gutter for the next uh, several years with that government assistance, um, dwelling construction is going to be falling as well, and so is business investment. There's really only one driver left for the economy in the, ne- in the, in the foreseeable future, and that's the government, uh, through, you know, public consumption spending, like increasing job seeker, and also um, public capital investment. Um, given that state governments are so beholden to developers and the logging industry, et cetera, et cetera, do you think there's a case for dissolving state government? So we've got two tiers of government instead of three local governments. Yes. Increase power. Would this better help facilitate a transition to a steady state economy based around um, modern monetary theory for those who are <laughs> decide to have it? If you were going to design a country now, you wouldn't do what we've done. Unfortunately, you know, Australia's history, we, we federated in 1901. You know, we were a whole group of group of uh, colonies back then. And the only way to get us into a, to form into Australia, into a one nation, was to, um, was to basically keep the colonies and then cr- make them state governments. So that's why we've got the three layers. Uh, it's not the optimal way, but that's just a trade-off we have to do to federate. Ideally, you wouldn't have it that way. You'd probably have two two systems like uh, like New Zealand's got and like a lot of different countries have got. It's a historical accident that we've got, got the three levels and you're never going to pass a referendum to get rid of the states. It's one of those things that you can say, yeah, it'd be great if we had that, but the fact of the matter is we're never going to get it. So, um, so in the meantime, we just a... have to try to find state governments who like logging a bit less than... <laughs> so, look, That's any thought... Any thoughts in a recession, and I feel like I'm going to sound like Paul Keating here when I say the recession uh, we have to have and probably going to continue to have. How, how do we get back to something nearer to the model that we had before the Howard era without causing further widespread financial distress? And what do we, what do we say to those who say, look, see, the immigration went down and look at this recession. Of course, we're going to have to have international yeah, students, skilled migrants, blah, 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 or large families, apparently, to Josh Frydenberg. But that's, I've got no doubt we're going to get those arguments. Unfortunately, unfortunately we just have to suck it up and um, just, just know that it's going to be a, going to be a rough patch. Uh, we know from prior downturns that it, that it typically takes... It could take five to ten years for your, you know, labour force to recover to what it was. And given this is our biggest downturn since the um, since the Great Depression, it's probably going to be more like ten years. So we're going to, we're basically facing a lost decade of incredibly low growth, a pretty a pretty dour sort of decade is what we're facing. Um, who, who knows how long the, the the virus is going to last for? If, if without a vaccine, we'll probably get that kind of situation where. Um, and we're already seeing it in some places like New York, et cetera, where their daily cases have fallen heaps because I guess it's already, it's sort of run its course through a lot of the population. And once it does that, it, it can't keep growing and eventually it just dies off. Um, 
but yeah, that that'll leave obviously in its wake a huge economic hole uh, that again um, will need to be filled by the government um, through you know those, those things I just mentioned that those those types of activities. Otherwise, if they don't do that, we could be looking at a Great Depression type situation where the government continually cuts spending to try and balance the budget, and then that just led to more austerity and more um, more job losses and you know a bigger economic decline. So. Um, the, the signs are good that the government gets that, uh, which we've seen with obviously, you know, the job keeper, job seeker and all these, this other stimulus that they, they need to step up. But hopefully they'll just keep, you know, transition that away from emergency income support into traditional stimulus, like infrastructure, public housing, that kind of thing. Um, also like to look at the look at the, the, the silver linings that have, that have come from the whole COVID thing. I actually wrote an article a couple of months back called, uh, I think it was back in June, called The Virus We Had to Have. Which, um, which basically borrowed from you know Paul Keating's famous quote, and um, and and in that article, I actually said that there, you know, sure the whole COVID nineteen thing's really bad. There's no doubt about that, but there is there is some good stuff to come out of it, and one of them obviously is it's um it's going to obviously return immigration back to a more sustainable level. I think I honestly think for about a decade because it's going to be very hard to um to ramp up immigration when there's obviously mass job losses and, and, and this huge demand deficit in the economy and a lot of people out of work. Uh, it's also forced countries, and I include Australia in that, to uh, confront its healthy, its unhealthy reliance on China. It's going to force countries away from just treating China as the, the world's workshop. And, um, and, and they'll actually, I'm hoping to see manufacturing, et cetera, return back to countries and them to become more balanced and more um, sustainable type economies. I guess also by, by forcing this into a recession, it's also gotten rid, gotten the monkey off our back. So for years we've been we've we've seen policymakers run stupid policies purely to keep Australia out of recession, even if it's led to worse sort of per person per capita outcomes. Nobody has wanted to be the be the government that was to, caused us to go into a recession. But now COVID's come along. Well, everyone's been forced into a recession, but it's gotten this whole um, you know Australia's unbeaten 29 year run, recession free, blah blah blah, off the back. Um, which means, you know, there's less there's less pressure on governments to keep doing these, you know, grow at all cost policies um, to keep the economy ticking along. You know, another positive to come out of this is we've actually seen the sort of I wouldn't say it's the end of neoliberalism, but it's it's definitely had an impact. So, who would have thought that you'd see a coalition government, which is, which for years has been banging on about balancing the budget and being a sound economic manager, etc., coming out with one of the biggest stimulus packages in the in the nation's history you know massive emergency income support um basically acting like a sort of you know complete opposite and and, and, they, know, actually, and they told us that it was only the labors who could get labor governments who could get us into recessions so you know life is full of ironies sometimes isn't it that's it yeah but it, but, but but i actually think it's a uh, I, I think it's a great thing like i you know um we saw it through the whole sort of uh, abbott um turnbull era and and the start of the Morrison government where, you know, it's all about balancing the budget and, you know, cutting costs and blah, blah, blah. And and now now obviously COVID's come along. It's destroyed the economy, which is obviously isn't their fault. But you've seen them now actually throw away the whole idea of austerity and to actually um, stimulate and provide this emergency income support. And, you know, to be honest with you, good on them. Uh, it's not, not exactly the way I would have done it, but it's still, you know, it's still really refreshing to see a coalition government do this. And that to me is another good thing to come out of COVID. 
um, it's kind of gotten rid of this whole neoliberal um, obsession. The other positive is um, the whole notion of having, you know, in Melbourne's case, probably 50,000 people a day, if not more, travel into a central location for work, um, jam together on packed trains, you know, cart roads, et cetera, to go into a central location for work is completely asinine. And, you know, COVID's taught companies that, hang on, people don't need to come into a central location for work. Everything, nothing falls over. Everything still works. And it's actually going to be a great democratizer of economic activity. It's going to diversify it away from this, this concentrated CBDs, dispersing in the suburbs, dispersing in the regions. It's going to give people more freedom about where they want to live. Um, they don't live, you know, within 10 cases of CBD if they want to avoid, you know, monstrous commutes, et cetera. And, and I think that's a, that's a really good thing long term. Yeah, sure, there's going to be costs as well. You know, it's going to be particularly bad for someone just entering the labour market and maybe lose out on some mentoring when they enter. Um, but, you know, I think overall it's a real positive. It's good for the environment as well, uh, having less. Um, it means we don't have to spend as much. Although I've been talking off about the need to spend on infrastructure, we're not going to need to spend as much continually trying to boost the public transport network just to so people can travel into the city every day. Um, we can spend on other things, which you know, gives more bang for your buck and actually improves people's lives. So, you know, there, there are a lot of good things that come out of the COVID thing. I mean, I guess I'm using the, the old silver linings playbook, but... Um, you know, but at the same time, there's still going to be a lot of pain, obviously, and you know, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. A lot of small businesses are going to go bust, which sucks. So, yeah, yeah we're entering the decade of consequences, and um, I hope people start listening to you more, Leaf, <laughs> in this decade of consequence so we can <laughs> pull ourselves back up from the brink so we don't have a terrible 20s and Indeed, uh, thirty thirties. So, um, unfortunately, I think I think I think this is going to be a rough decade. Um, in two thousand twelve, um, I wrote an article when the commodity price boom in saying Australia was entering a lost decade. Um, and, to, and what I meant by that was like falling income growth, where it's going to basically be never stagnate for a decade. And ended up being proven correct. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I've been wrong on. I'm not trying to say I'm, you know, not Nostradamus here, but um, I think we're going to have another decade like that. Unfortunately, so. Unfortunately, what was a lost decade, I think, is going to turn into a lost generation. We need to focus on not just the growth side of things and, uh, you know, focus on more of these quality of life type of things. So, you know, you, you can still have higher living standards without necessarily always having this rampaging growth. Um, but it just requires, you know, I guess, changing people's priorities and living a bit differently. The the only good thing for me that's come from this decade of consequence is being able to be smug when you have been right. So I think that's one virtue we can have. Now, we're coming to the end, Leith, um, and what I'd like to say, infrastructure has come up numerous times, and this podcast has been made possible by Sustainable Population Australia, and you're indeed um, a lead author in one of our discussion papers on infrastructure which i shall link to uh on the podcast when it when it comes out so um thank you very much it was a bloody good read oh cheers yeah that that that, that report was um was absolutely fantastic um obviously yeah I, I did the initial draft on it but the um the the additions and obviously the the editing it ended up being a terrific report. It's probably, honestly, it's probably, um, I mean, obviously I didn't, I wasn't the only one to write it, but probably the best thing that I've ever had my name named to, to be honest with you, uh, in terms of quality and punchiness and just getting to the point. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an absolutely fantastic report. It's one of those ones which I'm actually, you know, pretty, pretty proud of to be part of, 
Um, you know, I've, I've got a copy of the uh, the shiny, glossy version of my shelf inside the house, and it's uh, yeah, it's like Ripper. I just uh, unfortunately because it doesn't go with the narrative, um, you know, it's too easily dismissed by the uh, by the by the growth lobby. Indeed, but it is a. Uh, it looks snazzy and uh, reads snazzier. So, if listeners want to follow your work, uh, where can they go? Are there any upcoming? Well, <laughs> there are eighteen articles a day uh, at, at the very least. So I've discovered www.macrobusiness.com.au, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much. Uh, I don't. I don't have a social media presence. Um, I don't like dealing with trolls. And uh, and I find life easier not dealing with that sort of noise. So um, basically, yeah, that that's where that's where I am. Uh, yeah. that, that that's my public profile at least, and it's just a hundred percent on that side. Well, go check it out right now. Um, and until then, um, thank you so much, Lee, for being part of Post Growth Australia podcast. Yeah, cheers, anytime. You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcasts. I would like to thank Sustainable Population Australia for supporting this podcast. If you would like to support PGAP further, I'd be eternally grateful if you would consider subscribing and leaving and or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. The more reviews and ratings, the more that great people such as Leith will reach a wider audience. We are now linked to most of the big name podcast apps, so please check the subscription page on our website to find out more. Many thanks to Lee Van Onselen, unconventional economist from Macro Business, who took an hour of writing a tome worth of articles per day in order to speak with us. I was particularly impressed by Leith's vision of a well-being economy where work-life balance, community, and a slower, fairer, more enjoyable pace of life take centre stage. Although Leith, as an economist, comes from a different background to many of our prior interviewees, there is nonetheless many crossovers in vision. Less work, more community. I would like to end by referring to a recent article in the Australian press recently. The very title of the article in the SMH was titled, Greeny Good Guys Are Wrong to Oppose Economic Growth. It piqued my interest, if only because it is fairly atypical of the mainstream media to acknowledge that opposition to growth even exists. Gittins goes on to say that it's wrong to imagine that growth in GDP simply involves growth in the production of stuff, things you can touch. In other words, decoupling economic growth from environmental destruction. I've personally been an occasional admirer for Ross Gittins, given that he is an economist who has concerns around population, sustainability, the property bubble and the environment. And I'm also not saying that degrowth is something that's beyond criticism. I mean, everything is. I've read that decoupling theory has been demonstrated to be a bit of a wish in want of fulfilment. I recall Richard Heinberg discrediting its plausibility in his book, The End of Growth. Indeed, Ted Trainer himself, in his response to the Ross Gittins article, wrote, despite constant effort by producers to improve productivity and efficiency and resource use, etc., absolute decoupling of economic growth from resource use is not being achieved and is not likely to be. He goes on to say, 
Gittins argues that if we restrict growth, there will be a major unemployment problem. Of course there will. In this idiotic economic system, it must have growth. It cannot cope with stable levels of output, let alone reduction to sustainable levels. We need an almost totally different one, one that is geared to meeting needs with just enough resource use to enable a frugal but good quality of life without any growth. So what do you think? Do you think we can have a decoupled GDP growth that's uh, somewhat removed from the resource base? Or do we think that that's just not possible, that you can't have one without the other? Um, so please feel free to email me or reach us on the uh, podcast contact page where I will receive your feedback and I'm happy to share it next episode. For now, though, I think that is a perfect note to end on.